How do you picture God? Now, when you think about him, when you're talking about God, what are the sort of pictures that you have in, of him in your head? What are the sort of mental images that pop into your brain? Is God for you a bit like Morgan Freeman in a nice white clothes? That, that God is a friendly, gentle sort of bloke with a good sense of humour and a bit of a twinkle in his eye? Maybe you're like the person in Boston Legal that uh, God is made in your image and so you sort of picture God as a bigger version of yourself just with some of the rough edges knocked off. Perhaps he's a bit thinner than you. Maybe God is a bit less personal than that for you. Maybe he's just like a faceless pair of hands that comes down and moves everything around. God is a DJ, life is a dance floor, whatever that means. Maybe God is faceless voice that appears from behind clouds. When you think about God, how do you actually sort of picture him? Do you picture him? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be spending some time in the Old Testament book of Malachi. And at its heart, Malachi is a terrific book for reminding us that no matter what mental images you might have of God, even if they come out of the Bible like God as being a father and a judge, whatever image you have, it's really important to not limit God with those images. Whatever image you've got, it's really important that it doesn't cause you to underestimate God's greatness so as to ensure that we don't have too small a vision of God. Malachi is going to keep reminding us time and time and time again that God is more than just a bigger version of ourselves. He's going to keep reminding us how great he is. Now, the reason Malachi does this is because it's written at a time when Israel actually don't get how great God is, which is quite disappointing because they've had plenty of time to twig to it. You would have noticed as uh, we were looking it up that Malachi comes right at the end of the Old Testament. And so for Israel, there's been a lot of water under the bridge between them and God. There's been the great exodus out of um, Egypt. There's been the terrible exile into Babylon. There's been times of enormous prosperity under King David and especially King Solomon. There's been down times with civil wars and hopeless kings one after the other. And here in Malachi, here at the very end of the Old Testament, with all those things behind them, it's as if now God calls Israel into his office for a bit of a performance review and he sits them down and God effectively says, Israel... You still don't get it, do you? Despite all that we've been through, you still don't understand the true extent of my greatness. You just don't get how extraordinary I am. That's pretty much what God says to Israel time and time and time again in Malachi. You can see it this morning in just the opening five verses. Verses which are all about God's love. And which therefore we as Christians, this side of the cross, we're wonderfully aware of God's love through Jesus Christ. And yet here in Malachi, it describes God's love perhaps in ways and terms that we're not used to. That we may not even be comfortable with. Because you see, here God wants to remind Israel that his love is not actually just like the way we love each other. The love of the true and living God, the the love of the maker of heaven and earth, his love doesn't just give you a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling like the end of a romantic movie. His love 
is something you actually tremble before. His love humbles you. His love puts you in your place. And if it doesn't, well, maybe we haven't tweaked to just how great he is. We'll get to that in a tip. For the moment, let's work our way through the verses in terms of a declaration of love, a doubting of love, and thirdly, a description of love. That's pretty much the logical flow of the passage. First comes quite a dramatic declaration. Verse 1. An oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's quite a blunt and to-the-point opening here, isn't it? Malachi the man, he's simply mentioned in passing. There's no introduction, there's no fanfare, there's no background about where he's from or, or who he is. And that lack of information about him, it has the effect of throwing the emphasis squarely onto this stunning opening statement. It's as if Malachi is simply there to pull open the curtains and immediately you lose sight of him. Because the spotlight has fallen squarely onto this extraordinary declaration. I have loved you. Now that's extraordinary both because of who is saying it and also what it is that he's saying. I mean, firstly, who is saying this? The Lord there in capitals, it of course stands for Yahweh. That's the personal name of God that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. And so... This is the one true and living God speaking here. This is the maker and sustainer of every single thing you see speaking here. I was recently reading that if you made a scale model of the universe in which you reduce the distance between the earth and the sun down to the thickness of a single sheet of paper. Can you you imagine that? That's our scale. The distance between the earth and the sun is down to the thickness of a sheet of paper. Imagine how small you are on that scale. But on that scale, from here to the sun, diameter, uh, the the width of a piece of paper, on that scale, the distance between the earth and the next closest star would actually be a stack of paper 20 metres high. That's a long way. That's the closest star. If we're to use the same scale from here to the sun, thickness of a piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy is a stack of paper 500 kilometres high. That is mind-boggling. And yet that is nothing compared to the size of the universe, of which our galaxy is just like a speck of dust in that. So can you begin to imagine the power of the Lord who brought all of that into being simply by saying the word? He just spoke it and every atom in every planet around every star within every galaxy just spun into into place. The majesty and the glory of this God is mind-boggling. And that God says to Israel, I have loved you. Now, it's extraordinary, not just because of who's saying, but what it is is he's saying. That, that a God that big would even notice Israel in the first place, let alone say that he loves them. It's a very emotional word. It's showing us that a God that big can also be that personal. It's showing us that a God that is infinite can also be intimate. He has feelings. He loves. He gets emotionally involved with people. 
We're seeing that God is not just some distant force that's out there in the universe. He's not like the force in Star Wars. He's not like the impersonal force of gravity that moves things around in physics. He's not a something. He's a someone. And he's personal. And he's involved with his people. That's extraordinary. The infinite maker and sustainer of the universe says, I have loved you. It's a stunning declaration. Mind you, Israel is so completely devoid of any sense of his greatness that instead of being dumbfounded by what God says, they actually cast doubt on it. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Back in the 80s, Janet Jackson had a hit song called What Have You Done For Me Lately? It was a song all about a boyfriend who used to pamper her, used to look after her, used to look out for her, but who now neglects her. And so the song goes, you say that you love me, but what have you done for me lately? That's Israel's song here. Because you see, at the time of Malachi, Israel aren't doing very well for themselves. As I mentioned, it's after the terrible exile. It's right at the end of the Old Testament. And so it's good that they're back in the promised land after the exile, But it's all a bit unsatisfying because they're back in the promised land, but they don't own it. The Persians do, and they've got to pay them rent. They hate that. Sorry, the Romans do it. uh, Persians do at this point. And and for what? The place is a mess. There's the ruins of war all around them. Their homes, their buildings, lots of them are still in a shambles. Sure, they've had Nehemiah and Ezra to help them out, help them rebuild the city walls, and more importantly, the temple. But it's all just a bit of a non-event. Compared to the temple they used to have when Solomon was king, this new little temple they got, it's a total dud. And so for the generation of Israel living at this time in Malachi, hey, they've heard all the stories about Abraham that Alan helped us in Genesis uh, for the last few weeks. They've heard all the stories about Moses and the Exodus. They've heard all about that great escape with the plagues out of Egypt. They've heard all about the glory days of David and Solomon. They've heard all about it. But in response to God's declaration of love, they break into a chorus of Janet Jackson's song. Well, you say that you love me, but what have you done for us lately? Well, God replies with a description of just how he has loved them. Mind you, it's not in the sort of terms that we might expect. Verse 2 again. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord said, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, friends, look, here it is. This is perhaps the most striking moment of these short opening verses. Here is the cutting edge of these verses for us. In describing his love to Israel so as to demonstrate the ways in which he has and will continue to love them, God speaks of his sovereign choice of choosing Jacob over his brother Esau. Now Esau and Jacob, you might remember from Genesis, they're brothers. Their dad was Isaac, their granddad was Abraham. And so Jacob and Esau, they're brothers, but they were rival brothers and they were twin brothers. And they were always fighting with each other for positions of favour. And the nation of Israel, they descended from Jacob. And the nation of the Edomites, they descended from Esau. And as nations, they kept at each other. Israel and Edom, they were always at each other's throat. God's point here is, hey Israel, if you look back over history, you will see that I have loved Jacob 
and his descendants rather than Esau and his descendants. I have deliberately, consistently chosen Jacob and chosen his descendants to be my people over and against Esau and his descendants. Indeed, the verses go on to describe how God intends to keep doing that. Edom, verse 4, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild. But the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. I mentioned earlier, it's after the exile, Israel are rebuilding, so are Edom. Because the Edomites, they were taken into Babylon as well as exiles. They've got all their cities in rubble. And so they're trying to rebuild at the same time as Israel are. And God says, you watch Israel, they will not succeed. I will treat you preferentially. They will be crushed. They will be demolished. They will be under my wrath. And in history, that's what happened. That is exactly what happened. Israel persisted. Edom didn't. I mean, how many Edomites do you know? And yet how many Jews are still alive now? God's love for Israel is reflected in his preferential treatment of her. And it's all been the deliberate, sovereign choice of God to do that. That's why he sets the whole thing up in verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? In other words, based on just who Jacob and Esau were, I could have easily chosen Esau. Wasn't he your brother? Wasn't he your twin brother? In fact, wasn't he your older twin brother by a few moments? So humanly speaking, he should have been the favoured one according to the customs of the time, but I chose you. I passed over him and I chose you and I have loved you with free, sovereign, unconditional, electing love. We're at the end of the Old Testament. Go a few pages into the New Testament to Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is actually going to talk about this as well. He's going to make a reference back here to Malachi and he's going to spell it out even more bluntly. Romans chapter 9. And when you get to that, go to verse 10. Romans chapter 9. Verse 10. Now, Rebecca was... Isaac and, uh, sorry, Jacob and Esau's mum. Verse 10. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now friends, here is the important bit. Here is the way in which God's love is not like any other. Here is the way God's love is not like the way we love each other. God's love is connected with his sovereign, elective choice to love. He does not fall in love with people. He is not in love with you. He sets his affections on you. He chooses to love you. He chooses to love 
his elect. Now look, in all honesty, some people don't like this idea. Some people like to think more that God only chooses people by virtue of sort of looking into the future and seeing who it is in the future that's going to respond to him. And so because they're going to respond to him, they're the ones that God chooses. They're the one God predestines is another word that's often used. The God choosing is sort of just his foreknowledge of what's going to happen. The Bible knows nothing of those sorts of qualifications about God's sovereignty. The Bible never seeks to tame down the greatness of God in that way. In his word, God unapologetically, unashamedly tells us that he has compassion on whom he chooses to have compassion. It is completely at his whim. He appointed, he selected, he elected, he picked whatever word you want to choose. God chose Jacob over his brother Esau. And the New Testament affirms that God chooses all his people that way. It is an act of sovereign, perfect will. As God predestines and elects his people before even the beginning of the world. Now, does that raise a lot of questions? Absolutely. Is it easy to understand? I don't think so. Is it a mystery as to how God's sovereign choice can operate at the same time as us being held responsible for our own actions? Yeah, that's a mystery. But what do we expect? He is the one true God. Do you really think that his infinite greatness is going to be so constrained as to fit into our finite little minds? Do you really think that God's love is going to be nothing more than a sentimental, souped-up version of our own type of love? He is God. And his greatness is more than you and I can possibly imagine. And look, sure, maybe this is a time when we've got to go back to basics and we need to remind ourselves of the, the realness of Jesus and the reliability of the Bible. Maybe it's one of those times when we've got to remind ourselves that even if the Bible says things that we don't sort of like the sound of, that it's God's word to us and we need to submit to it. Maybe it is a time when we have to think through those sorts of back-to-basic issues. But look, it's not as if this truth doesn't bring us, much, uh, doesn't bring us some comfort. It, of course it does. Because God's sovereign elective love brings enormous assurance Because if your salvation could be traced back to the very will of God before you even physically existed, that gives immense security to your relationship with God. He chose you before you came into existence. So don't feel threatened that God's going to give you the flick because of something you've done. From the beginning, he chose you before you'd done anything. Don't feel nervous about God rejecting you for some terrible thing you might do in the future. From the beginning... He chose you. End of story. There's there's great comfort in that. But friends, as true and as wonderful as that is, that's not the main lesson here in Malachi. The main thrust here is not to bring us comfort. It's to bring God glory. The main thrust here in Malachi is to get Israel to wake up to the fact of just how special God is. For, as God says in verse 6, he wants them to see it with their own eyes. He wants them to say, great 
is the Lord. Even beyond the borders of Israel. Great is the Lord. And friends, it's good for us to see that as well, I think. It's good to remind ourselves of this. To not constrain our pictures of God so that they're too small. It's good to be reminded that the love of God is not just a truth so as to give us a nice, warm feeling in our hearts. It'll do that. As you think about the cross and as you consider how very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, but God demonstrates his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's a wonderful truth and that will excite us and it will fill us with a grateful wonder. But God's love properly understood will do more than that. God's love properly understood will not just give you a warm, fuzzy feeling like a nice romantic movie. God's love properly understood will leave you trembling before the God who has compassion on whom he chooses. And as you look around other people in your life, at work, in your family, in your friendship groups at, church, at, at, at school, as you look at others and you wonder, why doesn't God choose them? Why does he choose me? Because you know full well it's got nothing to do with you. You know full well that it's all to do with God, that, 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 that's all to do with God's free, sovereign, unconditional, elective love. That's why He's chosen us out of that. And it's nothing we do, good, bad, or indifferent. But as you look out in life and you see things from that perspective, it humbles you. It just strips off any pretense and any pride, and it throws us onto the greatness of God which is exactly Malachi's point. For God's love properly understood, it puts us in our place. And it reminds us that he alone is God and he alone is sovereign and he answers to no one. And if you don't like that thought, you have no idea who you're dealing with. For great is the Lord, far beyond the borders of our little lives. Let me pray to him. Father God, we do tremble before your word this morning at the extent of your sovereignty, at the extent of your purposes, at the extent of your majesty. And Father, we pray that we would never underestimate your greatness. Father, in the way that we picture you in our thought world, in the way that we have images of you, please keep us from the sin of idolatry and to never see you as less than you are. Father, we submit to your word this morning. You know the uncomfortableness that some of us feel about it, Father, you know our difficulty to grasp it and fully understand it. But, Father, before you, we submit. And we thank you that in your sovereign choice, you chose us. Father, thank you. Amen.